You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 63. For today's episode, we'll answer some of our listener questions that we requested at the end of 2020, and we'll plan to do one more episode based on listener questions uh, next week as well. And this week, our questions will focus on the role of Mary in Scripture and in the Orthodox Church. Father, to begin, let's start with uh, a very uh, generic question, one that relates to a common misconception. And many people ask both Orthodox and Roman Catholics if they worship Mary. How do we best answer that question? Well, that's a good place to start. There was actually a time when I was younger where I thought that Roman Catholics worshipped Mary, and at that time I really didn't know much about the Orthodox, except when I first learned about them in a world history class in high school, I thought, well, you know, it seems I agree with a lot of the things that they think, except it seems perhaps they also worship Mary, and, you know, this can be a big hurdle for some people. But we Orthodox most definitely do not worship Mary. Worship is something that is reserved for God alone. We, of course, as you know, venerate Mary, meaning we hold her in extremely high regard and honor her as a great saint, but we do not worship her. Just as in English there is a difference between the words worship and venerate, uh, so it is in the biblical Greek. There is a difference between worship, latria in Greek, and veneration, dulia. Uh, So these are two separate things. Could you maybe explain uh, a little bit more the difference between those two words? Yeah, it's kind of difficult in a sense because you're dealing with semantics, which of course are important, but they can be hard to distinguish. So let let me put it this way. We recognize that God exists, as it says of him in the Old Testament, I am, or I will be what I will be. In other words, God just is. He is totally separate and unique from his creation. On the other hand, Mary or anyone or anything that we venerate is part of creation, and they therefore rely upon God for their existence. So anyone that we honor or venerate, we honor because of their association with God. And with people specifically, we honor them because they submitted to the one who will be what he will be, the one who is. Whereas with God, we simply honor him because he is, because he is above and separate and holy in and of himself. Uh, So that's the way I would try to explain that. Good. Thank you, Father. Uh, Next question is really kind of a series of questions, uh, which relates to various names that we use for Mary. Uh, For example, we call her Theotokos, or God-bearer, or the Mother of God. And we also refer to her as Ever-Virgin, even though Scripture mentions Jesus having siblings. So can you explain how can Mary be the Mother of the Eternal God, Uh, the one who is, as you said, uh, and how can she be uh, considered ever-virgin? Well, this brings up an interesting topic, in my opinion, and I'll begin by giving you the theological answers and also a proper understanding of the situation from Scripture. Uh, But I want to then go further and explain why I think we're making a big mistake to focus so much on the theology and why I think we're missing out on the Theotokos' role in Scripture. Okay, good. So to begin, as you said, uh, please start with the theology. The theology of Mary is really tied up with the theology of Jesus Christ. So once you have the First Ecumenical Council, which is then 
confirmed at the second council, then you have this question. If, if Jesus Christ is truly divine, then when did he become divine? Was he always divine from the moment of conception, or did the divine presence come upon him at some other time, for example, at his baptism? And, and so in answering that question, and you know, I don't want to get too far down this road on this episode, but in answering that question, the church said that Jesus was fully divine from the moment of his conception. And, and so this is the reason the church referred to Mary as the mother of God or the God-bearer, to indicate that Jesus Christ was divine from the moment of his conception. So it really has to do more with Jesus uh, than with Mary to use the name Theotokos, God-bearer or mother of God. I see. That's very helpful. And how about the title Ever Virgin? Yes, so the title Ever Virgin is really meant primarily to protect the fact that Mary conceived Christ in a supernatural way, that he was conceived not by the regular human process, but in that special manner as outlined in Scripture. Now, in addition to that, the church believes that Mary remained a virgin even after giving birth to Christ, even after her marriage to Joseph. And that is a recognition of the respect given to Christ. Again, it all refers back to Christ, that the womb that brought him into this world was always respected and treated in a sacred way. And of course, that's not to say that, that there's anything inherently wrong or evil with sexual relations among married couples, but there are just certain times and places you know, that even married couples refrain from those types of relationships. It would be totally inappropriate, of course, to have that type of relationship in the church building itself. And so it is with Mary. She was like the temple, the church, that must be respected and held in a sacred manner at all times. Now, in terms of Scripture, people often refer to a passage, Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, where it says that Joseph knew her not, knew Mary not, meaning he had no sexual relationship with Mary until she had brought forth Christ. And so many people reading this in the English translation take this passage to mean that Joseph did in fact have sexual relations with Mary after the birth. But in the Greek, this word that is translated until simply does not have the connotation that we would ascribe to it in the English translation. And you can see from that passage that Matthew's one and only concern, if you look at the broader passage, is protecting the fact that Christ was conceived in this totally unique way. And then, of course, uh, you know, people point to the brothers of Jesus, and these are explained by different commentators as either being cousins, as we would call them today, or stepbrothers. You know, at that time, a cousin might be referred to as a brother, or the same term would be used. And so we know from Scripture that this is the case, the case of being stepbrothers or cousins, because at the cross, Jesus commends his mother to John the Evangelist, the author of the Gospel which is something he would not have done if he had siblings from Mary's womb, even if they were half-siblings. They would have been the ones caring for her. And then finally, this leads me to mention another important matter, uh, namely that we need to understand how marriage and society worked at the time of Christ. A woman was always under the legal protection of a man, either her father at the beginning of her life, or then, of course, later under a husband. And if she was widowed, then normally one of her male children uh, would be her protector. And this is why St. Paul, when he talks about widows in Corinthians, talks about a true widow needing to be protected by the church, taken in by the church, meaning a woman, a true widow, meaning a woman whose husband died and who had no male children. 
So what I'm trying to stress here is the fact that Mary, being young herself at the time of the birth of Christ, would have needed to be under the protection of a man, of a husband. It, it does not mean that they would have to be sexually active, but it would have been needed for basic civil and legal protection. That's a really helpful explanation, Father, both about the theology the scriptures and the context uh, of the time. Could you explain more about what you mentioned earlier, though, uh, about how you think that we tend to miss some of the point, uh, some of the role of the mother of God by focusing so much on this theology? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And we've talked about on this podcast before, uh, certainly I know I've said many times over the years too in, in various sermons, that we often miss the proper understanding of Christ's suffering on the cross. His suffering on the cross, from a biblical perspective, was not primarily about physical pain and suffering. The emphasized aspect of suffering was the suffering of shame. And in the ancient Near East, even today, in Middle Eastern cultures, and I would argue really even in our own culture, the greatest suffering is a suffering of shame, a loss of honor. I mean, look at what we now refer to as the cancel culture. You know, what are people doing? They're trying to dishonor someone, to shame them. And that's exactly what the Romans and the Jewish religious establishment were trying to do to Christ. They were shaming him, dishonoring him, trying to cancel him. Yes, we've, we've definitely talked about that in the past, uh, and I appreciate that. Especially, uh, I like how you highlighted this in terms of today's cancel culture. Because I think it does show how important it is, even on, in our own times, to feel like you're respected or honored and that you not suffer a shame or a loss of your reputation. So how does that all connect back to Mary and her role? The way it connects to Mary is that she also was willing to suffer shame for the name and the will of the Lord. As I said towards the beginning of this podcast, when we distinguish between worship and veneration, the primary distinction is that we recognize that God is holy in and of himself. He just is. Whereas the saints, including Mary, are holy inasmuch as they submit to him and do his will. And the ultimate way that we submit to God is by imitating what Jesus Christ did, which again is to be willing to suffer shame for the will of God and for his holy name. And how was it that Mary did this? Well, Mary did it by submitting to God's will to conceive and bring forth Christ, despite the fact that she would have been shamed, possibly even stoned to death, for becoming pregnant outside of wedlock. You know, even today where it's fairly common and tolerated when women get pregnant out of wedlock, it's still often in in many circles seen as a type of shame or embarrassment. I know even of someone alive today uh, who, when she became pregnant out of wedlock, you know, many years, a couple decades ago, was sent away by her family to live with other family out of town until she gave birth and gave the baby up for adoption. And then after that, she was allowed to come back as if nothing happened, as she'd just gone to visit relatives for a year. So the family was trying to hide the shame, the embarrassment. I'm not saying that that's right. I don't think it's right. Uh, But what I'm saying is that this is how society operates. It's just a fact. And even more so with Mary. You have a young woman, unmarried, who submits to God's will to carry his son, taking the risk that she would be shamed or even killed for his name. And that's the key biblical aspect of Mary, her key witness to Christ, her willingness to suffer shame. And when we focus on the theology and focus on how special it was for her to be the only human to carry the divine in her womb or to be the one chosen to bring forth God and so forth, you know, that, that's all great. But we should not lose sight of the fact that her deepest holiness was her submitting to shame for the will of God to be done. Very helpful. Thank you, Father. 
Today's episode focused on some of the most common questions regarding Mary. We began with the concern raised by many outside of the Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions that we worship Mary. Father Aaron stated that this is most certainly not the case, explaining that worship is reserved for God alone. We venerate Mary, meaning we hold her in very high regard and we honor her, but this is not at all the same as worship. We see this distinction between worship and veneration in English, just as we do in the Biblical Greek. This veneration is reserved for those who are part of God's creation and exemplify what it means to willingly submit to God. But in worshiping God, we honor Him because He is above all and separate and holy in and of Himself. We also discuss some of the various names we use for Mary, including Theotokos, the God-bearer, and the Mother of God. From a theological perspective, Father explained that rather than making a statement about Mary, these names point to the divinity of Christ and that his divinity was present from the moment of his conception. We also addressed the ever-virginity of Mary, pointing to Jesus commending his mother to John at the cross as evidence that the siblings of Jesus were, in fact, either cousins or stepbrothers. And as Father pointed out, the marriage of Mary and Joseph should be understood as providing a legal protection for Mary, not that the two were necessarily sexually active. Finally, it was stressed that the key biblical aspect of Mary is seen in her willingness to submit to God and suffer great shame, even risking death to do so. This tremendous example is why we regard her as the greatest among the saints and our champion leader. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia.